dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the bellboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everyone and welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep in the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. This is Zachary Scott Johnson. Today's episode is an interview with Fred Skepsi, who's directed Meryl twice. He's the director of Plenty from 1985 and A Cry in the Dark from 1988. It was great to talk with him. He's, a, he's directed a number of other films as well, including, but not limited to, Barbarossa with Willie Nelson, Roxanne with Steve Martin, The Russia House with Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer, Mr. Baseball with Tom Selleck, Six Degrees of Separation with Will Smith, Stocker Channing, and Donald Sutherland, IQ with Meg Ryan, Tim Robbins, and Walter Matthau, Fierce Creatures with John Cleese, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Kevin Kline, Last Orders with Michael Caine, Bob Hoskins, and Helen Mirren, It Runs in the Family with Michael Douglas, Kirk Douglas, and Bernadette Peters, Empire Falls with Ed Harris, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Helen Hunt, and Paul Newman, the Eye of the Storm with Charlotte Rampling, Jeffrey Rush, and Judy Davis, and Words and Pictures with Clive Owen and Julia Binoche. It was great to talk with him. Uh, just a few programming things. Uh, there's no real Merrill news except that there is a release date for The Prom, which will be December 11th on Netflix, so we can all look forward to that. Uh, Merrill is up for an Emmy this coming Sunday for Big Little Lies Season 2. Um, Other than that, Meryl McNally and I are working on another COVID challenge where we're going to bring you six consecutive episodes, which will wrap up all of the movies from the 80s. So look for that in a couple of weeks, probably late September, early October. In the meantime, hope you enjoy this interview. We thank you for tuning in. You can always email us at MerylStreetPodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back with you soon. It's nice to see you. How are you? Good. This is very exciting. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us. That's okay. So you are a day ahead of us in Australia, so don't tell us what happens. We don't want to know. No spoilers. <laughs> you certainly don't want to know. We're in Victoria where we're, uh, we've been in lockdown, like full lockdown for six weeks, and now it's been extended at least another two months to everybody's shock and horror and um and in fact will the may even go on into october sometime we have a curfew from 8 8 p.m to 5 a.m i think they've let let us now go from 9 p.m to 5 it's just crazy fortunately i'm in a very nice place Mm. that's good that's good. How did um, you have, I guess this is kind of a funny thing for us to lead with, because, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the Merrill stuff, but we were, we were curious, because you have several films in development, at least according to the internet. Were you, like, currently working on anything when this all happened? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not shooting, though. Um, I've got a rather rough five years. Um, I had a project called Andorra that I got an extraordinary cast for and we picked all the locations for and uh, everything but we uh, were not quite able to raise the final money uh, mostly because I think 
the, the uh, producers who started it are very, very amateur and, and kind of kept seeing it as an Australian film when in fact it was uh, a big, big international film, always was. When I say big, you know, sort of, uh, you know, we could have done it for probably about 13 or something uh, and get the same kind of value that uh, the incredible or the talent of Mr. Ripley had at about 25. <laughs> uh, well, but they couldn't even raise that. And, uh, you know, so those three years went by. And then, and then I wrote one for China and Australia. And uh, again, I had uh, people who were supposedly experts in uh, China. And, uh, you know, they teed up distributors and finance and stuff over there. and. Uh, all of which balked at the last minute. So it's been a fun five years. Oh, that's <laughs> frustrating. I'm so sorry. And now I'm writing a five-part uh, series, which I'm doing on spec. So. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, I, I yeah. know that because that was going to reunite you with Clive Owen, right? That was going to be him and Guy Pierce in the... Uh, in yeah. 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 Well, hopefully, hopefully some other way to get to that you know i don't know I, it's who knows what this is going to look like on the other side of all of the covid stuff you know it, it's it, it'll change the industry in ways we don't even know about yet you know it's yeah right. you can see it already happening with certain things mm -hmm. um mind you you know i hope we don't all end up shooting things in one room with <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. There's a couple, you know, you can get, a, there's an HBO show that's about to do exactly that. And um, I feel like you could do one or two of those kind of creatively, but if everything starts to look like that, it's, it's going to be a lot less interesting really fast, I think. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Which is pretty funny because split screen used to be anathema in Hollywood. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> let's let's see. How should we dive into? Well, Plenty was first, right? Plenty was before Cry in the Dark. So, um, correct. Can you yeah. Tell us about kind of what what led you to Plenty. This is a very interesting uh, collection of people. I'm curious about the Joseph Papp connection, actually, as a producer. Right. Uh, Joseph Papp produced it uh, for the public theatre. Um, so after it, after its uh, run in England, uh, he liked the production and uh, brought it over to New York and did it at the public theatre. And uh, I'm not sure whether he mooted it as a uh, as an idea for film or not, uh, but. Somehow we, he was connected to all the rights for that. And um, Sam Cohen had uh, my agent, <clears throat> who was also Merrill's agent. Um, and uh, uh, who was the, sorry, I'll just, uh, I'll think of the producer's name in a minute. The Mark Seiler? Uh, yeah, he was, he was. Lower down the totem pole. Or Edward Pressman. Ed Pressman, yeah. I've got Ed that a... here. Yeah. <laughs> ah, cool. <laughs> uh, and 
then uh, Sam represented Meryl and he represents me. He represented David Hare as well. So um, uh, he put us together. And uh, I had seen the play um, and I thought it was really fantastic. And I thought one of the things about the play, uh, which they kind of did on stage in a way, was projections. But where things took place was as important as what took place and sometimes, you know, even more important. So going, going to film was like a huge advantage in that case. Um, And I went to meet David Hare uh, at a, a, he was sort of staying at a hotel um, on the corner of Park and, uh, not Park, uh, uh, Fifth Avenue and and the Park anyway. Uh, And uh, I sat down and told him what I liked. And I said, but before we uh, before we go on, I have some reservations about the play and about how it was played, etc. And I should express those because when I do, you may not want to continue, you know. And I would understand that, which I did. And uh, I thought that uh, a couple of things. One thing about the way it had been played by the actress who created the part uh, was very diamond hard. Uh, And on stage, she sort of always spoke to the corner of the stage, not to the others on stage and not to the audience either kind of thing, which was very much you know, the character holding itself in, which was which was a brilliant idea. But there were kind of no fissures into the inner life of the character, and I thought that that was a problem. And I thought there were a couple of uh, structural problems in the in the material. And David looked at me and said, oh, good, I've been trying, trying to fix those for a while, <laughs> so let's do it. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, so we worked on that, you know, uh, and we decided that we should do it and then uh, got together with Meryl. Uh, and then it was a matter of, you know, finding uh, exactly the right people to, you know, at her level uh, you know, to do it. So. Which I think you did. This is this is an incredible cast. Holy cow. Was yeah. that... That's fairly easy. Um, once the three of you had sort of gotten together, was the casting process? Did it flow? Um, yeah, pretty much. It wasn't uh, particularly easy. Um, Sam Neil at the time uh, was, you know, he'd done quite a lot of television, uh, and most of the television, I think, he was a pretty kind of uh, contained and dour character, um, and uh, so the uh, casting person, uh, Mary Selway, who was absolutely brilliant, uh, was concerned that he, you know, was too dour for the part. And I said, "You should, of all people, you should know that's just what he's being cast in. You know, <laughs> that's not necessarily the person." And I knew Sam, uh, and Meryl uh, was 
kind of interested and bit, a little concerned. So I set up a meeting. I said, just let me bring him into a room with you all and we'll see. So Ed and Meryl and, and uh, Mary uh, were in the room and I brought Sam in. Uh, and when the introductions were over, I told him to sit the fuck down which is a joke, by the way, uh, and, and, and something else very, very Australian and, and rude, which, which, you know, you, as, a, as a, you know, one of us, he kind of knew immediately and he just burst out laughing and you know, <laughs> told me to sit on it. And, uh, and all I did was I turned around to the room and went, see? Yeah. Nice. Uh, and he, so he got so that part wasn't too hard to cast. Um, uh, then uh, no, the rest of them were not bad. Ian McCallum was, uh, you know, hadn't done. Uh, I think he'd done one film up to that stage and was pretty nervous about film. But you know, he was excited to do it mm -hmm. uh, because to me it was kind of the seminal point of the play. Yeah. Uh, seminal moment rather than point. Um, and so I needed someone, you know, to bring that screen scene to life between the two of them. You know. uh, so that was good. That was, uh, um, and he used to stand like uh, in between things. Um, Suriam would stand up on this balcony in the foreign office where we were shooting. Uh, and he said, I just love watching you two work. <laughs> and partic but particularly like watching Meryl work. <laughs> yeah. Well, Which, yeah. Well, they're great on screen together. Yeah. They're very dynamic. Fantastic. Yeah. And then Gong John Gilbert, of course. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know. Charles Dance. I mean, yeah, it was a, a great cast. You know. Yeah. Since you've had the pleasure, I assume pleasure, I, you know, I assume you say yes to an interview about her because your experiences with her were positive, but how different was Meryl in the two movies that you directed her on? I mean, in particular, A Cry in the Dark is so much heavier. Um, although A Cry in the Dark so what we do on our podcast here is we watch a different Meryl movie and then kind of review it each time we go back. And this is easily one of my very favorite performances of hers, easily. And one of my favorite movies of hers. I love Cry in the Dark so much. And there's something about it as we reviewed it that I thought, you know, for such a heavy movie, it's a heavy topic. It's such right. an enjoyable film to watch. And that happens every once in a while, but that's a kind of a hard thing sometimes to, to manage when the subject is, is kind of heavy. Um, but so, you know, the differences between what was she like on these two different movies? Were there a lot of similarities or was she different because the material was so different? Well, obviously, by the time of the second movie, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, you know, she kind of... Uh, when we did the screening, uh, the first screening for her and Joe Papp, um, Meryl came up to me and she said, wow, a lot of people talk about all the things they want to do in a film and want to achieve, you know, and you know, normally it's just talk and they don't get much of it, but you got all of it. Uh, and I thought, oh, thank you. So 
that meant that obviously she was you know, assessing it all the way through and you know, hoping maybe it was going to be what I said, you know. Um, so, you know, that put us on a different footing from that, from that point on. Uh, but we really had, a, uh, I think, mostly uh, a very good uh, understanding and relationship uh, going going through. Um, she's um, um, she's absolutely fantastic because you can you see a scene and something's going beautifully, but you know, there's one or two things uh, you think you know might need fixing up. So you go and have a little chat. You know, not necessarily about that. I want you to, you know, emphasise that word. None of that stuff, but just saying, look, it went really well, but, you know, I had the ceiling, you know. And um, when we play them back on on the editing machine, um, you could play three takes together just to see the difference. Uh, and it was extraordinary that they were exactly the same length Everything was the same until the moment that had to be changed. So it was the same, and then you see the change, and then it was the same, and then you see the change, and then it was the same wow. in all three takes. So that that is a master's control of what they're doing. And I'm like, I'd like to tell you I was responsible for that, but I'm not. <laughs> No, she's just very good, and and the great thing is, you know, when you talk to her about it, uh, she, you know, she instantly knows. Yeah, I did that right, or I didn't do that right, or you know, um, and which is good, you know. So, um, we had we had one wonderful, uh, you know, the scene where they come into the apartment, Charles dancing her the first time she's back in England after the war. Mm-hmm. And she comes in and lets him go into the room and chucks her stuff down and gets some money out of a purse and puts the fire on. And uh, we were doing it in one take, uh, which I'm not quite sure that she realised that. Um, but I had I had talked about uh, that we would do deja vu things. So whenever she comes into the apartment, she would come in exactly the same way, no matter what period it was in. So it was when she came in after the war, we moved her in exactly the same way, ended up at the window when she came in and it had been done up a bit, you know, and then I think there's three times we do it. And it was always done the same so that you have that deja vu thing going on for us. But also it was mentally, you know, for her. So anyway, to cut a long story short, she comes into the room, and it's pretty simple scene, you know. Uh, and uh, I was like, it wasn't quite gelling. Uh, so I, you know, I always have a few things I can say to hopefully help, and I would go over and say it. Anyway, we got up to about the sixth take or something, I kind of went, uh, I went over to him and said, look, I'm sorry, I, can, I, don't, I don't quite know how to help you here, uh, but something's just not gelling. I, and um, I said, 
perhaps maybe, just tell me what you're thinking about when you come through the door. And she said, I'll have to use some language here. Um, I've got 14 fucking things to do when I come in the door. I've got to put the mail down there. I've got to put the umbrella down there. I've got to take my coat off. I put, put my coat down there. Uh, then I've then I've got to um, uh, get my purse. I get my purse. Get my handbag. Get my purse out of my handbag. Open the purse. Take out the coin. Put the coin in the gas meter. Switch on switch on the button that drops the coin. Get the matches. Take the matches out. Light the match. Light the fire. All between his lines of dialogue. <laughs> and do it like I've done it every day of my life. And I went. Got it. Sorry, Meryl. It's, it's one one take. Do not worry about continuity. Just come in, fling your stuff anywhere you feel like, like you've like you've always done it. Don't worry about it. You can do it differently every time. It wouldn't matter. And we can dub him. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got it. Got it. Next take. You know. Uh, the other thing I learned. Uh, you know, so uh, there's two things that happen in movies. If you've got a uh, a simple transition scene, you know, when you're scheduling, you kind of go, oh, okay, uh, we'll be able to do this in an hour and a half, this scene, and it'll be one or two shots. Uh, you're just sitting by the window, you're typing, fantastic, you know. Uh, and frequently, that's the scene you suddenly find yourself spending a morning on because you just can't get it right. Uh, the, sim the simple one, there's, sometimes there's two reasons. One, in a really difficult scene, you've all spent so much time working on it that it actually, you, you've kind of seen all the pitfalls in advance and it actually goes quicker than you think. It's the simple scene that you really think is simple you know, and you go, something's going wrong. It just, just wasn't working, you know. And uh, so, again, I talked to Marilyn. She said, I've got nothing to play. Like, to us, we go, you know, sit there. You're typing some documents out and you're sort of thinking about uh, stuff, time, time passing, right? I've got nothing to play. So what it means is two things. It, it, one is there's a script problem uh, in the scene in, in actors' terms, um, you know, or you uh, and the actor haven't worked out, you know, manufactured something that they could actually be uh, doing in the scene. Um, and, you know, actually, she told me that, uh, which was which was fantastic, you know, because once you twig it, you know, then you sort of either do a little quick rewriting or you come up with subtext, you know. Uh, and, uh, but she was, she was quick at that and honest, you know, never trying to uh, bluff it through. And, uh, you know, and of course, I have to be that way too, so that um, you get, to work with an actress like Meryl, to work with an act actor like Gilgood, or you learn that really uh, what they need is a, a sounding board, someone who's listening intently, and a mirror 
right? You got you are kind of the mirror, uh, um, so that you you just helping them go to the place that they want to go to, and at the same time you're focusing focusing it for where it stands in the film and where the film is going to. You know? And the best way to do that is just to be quite straightforward and quite open and honest. Now, that varies with different people, you know, whether you need tact, whether you need shorthand, uh, all of that stuff. But, you know, it was I found with both Merrill and John Gilbert, they're just, you know, straight talk. Yes, you're talking about what you're feeling and those kind of things, but leave out the psychobabble. Get to the get to the nuts and bolts, you know, and then once once they've got the nuts and bolts right, then they're free to take flight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing she she understood because we did a lot of uh, um, sometimes, uh, you know, like the scene uh, where she uh, kind of erupts against the John Gilbert character who's pontificating. Yeah. You you sort of know this is Meryl's scene. She's the force of this scene. This is what we concentrate on, which is why that sh- that becomes like one shot that just goes all the way in, you know, before she stands up and runs around the room. Um, and you, you need to clear that with the actor you know because sometimes you could do one of those one shot things and uh, they just get in the way but if if you kind of explain why you're doing and what you're doing uh it's so that all you know you just more and more and more concentrate on them uh then they you know then you're they're your partner in that process because you both know this is the centre of the scene, you have a little chat. Now, you don't always get this bit right, unfortunately, but <laughs> you go, do you want to start with this? Or do you want to warm up on other things? Uh, but I'll be prepared to drop whatever we're doing and come back to it if you're ready to do this main part of a scene. You know, So you get that simpatico uh, so that you... You all know that what you're going to capture most is that particular bit, and uh, then work around it. And uh, sometimes that really works wonderfully. <laughs> sometimes you put, get in the pile of quicksand. Um, but she, again, you know, she was fantastic at that, at understanding that, and um, and what you were trying to achieve. And the other thing is. Uh, you know, we had to do uh, when we were shooting in the house. Um, uh, I think it was Gilbert's house, not well, not actually his house, but in the film. Um, you know, we had to complete it by a certain time, so it meant that you know, on one of those days, I think we were shooting for sixteen hours because we had to get out of the house and. Uh, uh, you know, after a while, everybody's getting tired and, and probably getting to a slightly grumpy stage. And uh, <laughs> uh, I think um, uh, the cameraman, Ian Baker, you know, who's all part of what I do quite, you know, obviously a very important part of 
and we have a great relationship. And he was going up. Well, Meryl was kind of lying back on the stairs, a bit exhausted, and he was running up the stairs to adjust the light. And as he went past, he said, "Get up and act." <laughs> Which uh, she twigged straight away, <laughs> and just you know, and it kind of broke the broke the tension for everybody, you know. Okay. So she was great like great like that, you know. And then and you know one of the important things there are two important things in that film was that England is so surrounded by tradition and ceremony and everything, and monuments and statues and everything. So we we filmed a lot of stuff through all that what what I you know psychologically pressing in on you, society pressing in on you and that world pressing in on you. So we had that in all our visuals. So often we had to structure shots like when she's at her front door of the house, all those columns of porticos we shot down and you know that uh, you're asking an actor to actually be in a certain place so you can achieve that. Which is, you know, some actors don't really like to do that, but she understood it and uh, and understood what it meant, um, and you know, was fantastic in it. So had to be kind of uh, heightened neuro neurotics neuroticism. <laughs> um, you had to be careful about when you went in with the suggestion. <laughs> 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 Had you started writing A Cry in the Dark when you were working on this project? Did it come after? Did you always have Marilyn? No. no. Um, Verity Lambert, the producer on that, who had the rights to it, uh, had had a script done um, that was sort of fairly much along the book and was a pretty straightforward uh, script. Uh, and she had come to me and uh, asked me if I wanted to do it. I was living overseas at the time and quite horrified whenever I came back to visit my kids and stuff, you know, two or three times a year. She, uh, there wasn't a function, there wasn't a gathering of any kind that you went to that didn't just end up in all the shouting matches about this case. And it just had me dumbfounded that, 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 that it could cause this kind of reaction amongst people. Uh, so when Verity rang up and asked me if I wanted uh, to be involved in the film, I thought, no, no, it's just, it's, uh, you know, it's an ongoing case. Everything I do is likely to affect uh, in some way uh, that, that case or those people. Uh, and often when people do these kind of things, they, they, uh, they combine characters and uh, situations and, uh, and it's not exactly the truth. And I didn't think doing not exactly the truth would work. So I said, no, no, I can't do this. It just, just wouldn't work. But Verity kept ringing me and ringing me. Uh, and one day she rang me and she said, you know what, I've worked out why you're not doing this. And I said, oh, you're wise that. She said, because you don't know how. I said, fine, thanks a lot, goodbye. I hung up, so I hung up and I sat down for a few days 
and I came up with the way it is now done uh, because I thought it was there was no single villain in this. It was um, you know like, like whether it's the judges or the the people who sort of test the chemistry of things or, you know, uh, it was everybody. The whole country was against them. And, you know, you don't want one of those Greek chorus things where you cut to a hotel or you cut to the same group of people reacting. You had to show that it was the whole country, you know, which is why I came up with that situation and wanted much more personal things in their life as well as what the whole court case was about. So uh, I rang Ver I rang Verity Lambert and uh, uh, said, this is how you do it. And I outlined it. And I said, now, F off. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, about two weeks went by and the phone rang and it was very Lambert again. <laughs> I said, no, 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 don't tell me to have I've got someone to talk to you. And it was Meryl. Uh, and she said, come on, buddy, we've got to do this. And I thought, yeah, Meryl has the aesthetic that I like, but she's also got uh, an understanding of the, of the commercial side of it as well, the commercial appeal. And I thought... And she's got it. She's very intelligent. So she's got the real balance that I need. And I, I knew I would have an ally uh, and that together we would be able to do it. So, so I accepted straight away. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine when yeah. you know Meryl is going to be a part of it, that's a tough thing to reject. Right. Does anybody turn down a Meryl Streep movie, really? No, probably not. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but it was more than that. It was more than that. I'm not that way inclined. It was about her abilities uh, and her sensibilities. Like I said, that I would have an ally, that I would have somebody who would counteract uh, my too artistic... Uh, uh, tendencies, you know, uh, to I uh, get the balance, but more than that, that we could explore uh, the right way of doing it uh, together. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but you know, because that was such a high profile, like you say, huge case, that all accounts were that you know everybody was really hounded on this movie that there was press everywhere what was your experience i know meryl has talked about it was one of the first times in her career that you know when she went back to her hotel there were photographers outside every you know day every waking moment and she had young kids or maybe just one with her i don't know how many of her kids she had with her at the time but um, what was your experience as a director like trying to deal with all of the kind of craziness surrounding this movie and how it was being perceived by the Australian people at the time? Yeah, well, I knew that was going to be difficult, very difficult. Um, and, and probably more difficult for her. We, we tried to uh, control that a bit. We had, um, uh, they went to sort of stay in a house out of town uh, and then somebody put, a two-page spread in the middle of the daily paper on photographs of the house and every room inside it and everything. And, uh, 
Um, they all thought, oh my God, that's too dangerous. So she moved back into the, back into uh, close to the middle of town. And we had a couple of uh, uh, security guards outside the house at all times. Uh, to her credit, though, she, you know, she got out and about and did things and did all the normal shopping. <laughs> but one night, with the security guards outside, somebody got into their car and stole their radio. Not <laughs> 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 the security guards in the Merrill and Don's car. So <laughs> they probably weren't as effective as we thought they were. <laughs> um, it rattled her, I think. Uh, we had a, uh, when we were in Alice Springs, uh, we were descended on by a, not not a crowd, but some very persistent press when we were at Ayers Rock, and it was rattling Merrill quite a bit. And I and I kind of said, um, uh, look, it's better we just let them get a couple of shots, and then let's then they'll go away rather than keeping at us. And she she sort of she sort of agreed, not terribly happily, of course, but. Um, and then the then the person took advantage of it, and I remember just laughing at the ridiculousness of the person's behaviour and trying to get him out of that, you know. But it upset her greatly, and I understood why because uh, that's what the film was about, partly, you know, about the, the ridiculousness of the media and the persistence and the the harm that they can cause. So, of course, you know, she's absorbing all this as the character she's playing and uh, uh, and it just exacerbated. Uh, it was exacerbated by this person's behaviour. You know. uh, after that, we were even more careful, shall we say. And... Um, you know, um, aside from all of that, you know, those kind of intrusions, um, you know, sometimes, you know, like with somebody off in the distance with a long lens or something, and, you know, you think as a so-called normal person, well, you know, what the, what the hell does that matter? But if somebody's immersing themselves in a character, uh, they're trying to keep that concentration all the time because in film you know you break for 10 minutes or 15 minutes while you're changing setups you know the actor to come on bang be right back in character you know like we call saying knock it off uh, well if they're then you know being interrupted by that having people ask them questions and people talking to them is pulling them out of the zone that they're in so uh, uh, everybody's got to be alert to that fact your whole crew and everything uh, which is where Ian Baker you know my cameraman apart from being an excellent cameraman uh, is always incredibly helpful because he's he's got the whole crew prime that um, uh, say a minute or so, two minutes before the actors come to the set, everybody starts. He gets everybody to quieten down so that 
everybody knows what they're there for and they move quieter and they, you know, cut out the chatter. So all concentration goes on to the person on the set. And yeah, it's hard to do out in the middle of the, what we call whoop whoop, but, you know, um, and it's 100 degrees and, and you're, you're running to get something done. Uh, but it's important. And, you know, Ian is always fantastic at that. And, and you're getting, you know, crews of big hodgepodge of all different kinds of people. I'm getting them to to get that sensitivity. Uh, it takes a bit of doing, and uh, but it's really what it's about. Oh, yeah. In the in the court, this is a, another uh, insight, I guess, into Meryl. Uh, one of those very important scenes, you know, like I was talking about in Plenty, uh, is when she's in the dock being questioned, and uh, you know, she's she has to come up with that line of "We're talking about my baby here." Mm-hmm. It's a highly emotional. Thing. And I was shooting it, part of it, from right up the back, up in the, what would be, you know, the mezzanine behind heads, so that I was tracking behind heads because I wanted uh, the screen to be blocked out in between her words so it could pop other images in of what she was thinking of. If if I needed to, so you know that's pretty delicate timing. Don't be in the wrong place at the wrong time, Um, and you and you have you know again you've got Ian, Ian and everybody, you know sweating on it, going slower, going because you know the dolly group's one of your most important allies on the film. (laughs) They've got to get it just just right, you know. and uh, you involve them creatively, which helps. Anyway, we got it right, and she did an absolutely, seemingly terrific take. And all of the people playing the uh, audiences that were in the courtroom uh, burst into applause, right? And I went, oh, God. And because I didn't really think it was that good or, or quite right. <laughs> I thought, oh, God, this is not very helpful. Um, and, uh, I'm, you know, I'm stuck upstairs. I don't like to you know, act as people get around and talk to them quietly. So it's just between us and we don't embarrass one another. Um, so I extracted myself from upstairs and up down. I said, how am I going to deal with this? Anyway, I raced across the courtroom. Went on her uh, on the bench of her dock and said, um, "We're not going to be fooled by that applause, are we?" <laughs> <laughs> and she said, "No, no, no. It wasn't good enough. It wouldn't fit. We went out to them. It wasn't good enough. Let's go again." <laughs> <laughs> so I can't tell you how relieved I was, but uh, <laughs> but that knowledge that understanding of the and it was it's a nuance you know it's not it wasn't a big thing you could have used the tape it would have been all right but when you're dealing with somebody who's capable of so much more you uh you go for it you know uh, and when they understand that difference then it's wonderful and that's 
that just makes uh, all the difference, you know. And and there's a delight and exciting to work with, you know. Mm -hmm. We just reviewed that movie and both gave it away. It's one of our, each of our favorites. Love, love, love that movie. It's so good. Right. I mean, you know, when you look at uh, what she did, uh, you know, in Australia, the newspapers were not very kind about that movie at the time, but um, they uh, criticised her Australian accent. They said, ah, oh, she sounds a bit New Zealand, you know. Well, guess what? So did the woman that she was playing. You know, she had lived in, was brought up in New Zealand for quite a long time, so she had a little New Zealand in her accent. So Meryl had it absolutely perfect, you know. Hmm. And, and that's the thing that she does. She does that without um, uh, having a dialogue coach. She, uh, you know, giving her phonetic ways of doing things. She she has a way of, for herself, of absorbing it. Uh, in, in, drawing it into herself. So that it becomes natural and part of her, and she's not conscious of it. So that when she, you know, goes into character, it's it's there. You know, uh, it's it's an extraordinary ability. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, to let herself look look so crap. <laughs> she, she said, when she's finished, she said, "I'm going to go and get a picture where I look glamorous straight away." <laughs> <laughs> Which she did, I guess, because I think the one after that was She Devil, where she really, like, you know, yeah, she did exactly that. I was actually going to ask if you were surprised at all by the response to it. I mean, I think here in America, the closest thing we had to the Chamberlain case is probably the O.J. Simpson case, you know, where it was so divisive and everybody in the country was really invested in this trial. It seems kind of like the precursor to that. Yeah. Well, you actually had one. You had one of the the uh, family that ran the uh, uh, child care thing or kindergarten or something, uh, where uh, the whole family were accused of molesting molesting children, and there were quite a few parallels with the way the media presented things. That you know, there's that whole thing of presenting the picture on every telecast. Uh, in that case, the grandmother of the who started this place was in a wheelchair, poking her tongue out aggressively at the media because she was furious. And that's the picture they always used in the background during the telecast. And they were doing the same thing with, uh, with Lindley. There was you know, this constant use of the unflattering picture you know yeah i could never have i really couldn't have done that film without what was the overall was the overwhelming response to the case that they were guilty were you fighting the flow of that with this film or was or was australia really split down the middle in the controversy no 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 everybody was everybody well, not probably not everybody, but uh, pretty much the whole of Australia was totally 
against it. Like it was virulent. It was just horrible. So what we tried to do in the film, and don't forget I had Sam Hill in that film too. And what we tried to do in the film was uh, every actor was instructed to play the character with the best intentions. Every character, to sell that character, uh, not to play that character as a villain, not to take a position on the character other than that that character thought that what they were doing was the right thing to do, or their beliefs were such that they were driven to do that. But to to play it as if you're them in that time and why you're doing it, to put their best foot forward, not not colour it with your opinion of their behaviour. And, and in doing that, and which was one of the ways you were able to take a certain artistic flight in the film, is there was almost always a way of everybody involved playing a scene that led you to understand that if you were there, you might have seen that. If you were here, you would have experienced that. And if you were right next to it, you would have got a whole different impression. And we found that there was always a way with people, as I say, putting their best foot forward for their characters, of playing it, and you just went, ah, I understand that, you know. So the whole idea was to let the facts tell you uh, the truth, you know, let the truth emerge just through the facts. And, you know, even right down to the music, we did not colour it. The music was just used to kind of put a driving yeah, endless energy through because, you know, it was like this thing happening to them and you did it with the music. And we weren't trying to colour it an emotion, emotionally. Or, As you were in production, I would imagine, still an active case. I mean, they were kind of... Oh, yeah. No, yeah, no she was in jail. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was that's that was the the worry. It was ongoing all the time, and and what what we did, or even if we unearthed something, you, you just knew that you you could affect this, and not necessarily in the right way. Particularly since so many people were against it when right. they first saw the film, they just broke down in tears, probably very quickly, because they suddenly could see what it was they were against right. that they could suddenly see that they're just their own innocent way of presenting themselves under the circumstances was what caused many of the problems for them completely irrational i can't imagine having that moment what was what was sam neil's process like and how did he handle all the controversy going on around the film and and the case Pretty much, the, pretty much the same. He's, you know, he's a consummate actor. He's worth. He's uh, been there, done that. Uh, slightly different process, I guess. Uh, and so, but yeah, he was. He didn't let it get up his nose too much. I think probably because the concentration was on there. All. Uh, <laughs> you know. And he was very protective. And very, very work. They work well together, and he he worked well together, understanding what she would be going through too, and 
you know, keeping keeping her comfortable with all of that. It's got a lovely wry sense of humour, you know, so uh, that helped that helped a, an enormous amount. It's was it was he always the choice? I mean, I think he's a perfect choice actually, but. You know, you, the three of you had worked together on plenty. It's kind of, you know, was it just kind of a natural segue to a cry in the dark, or were there other people and he just kind of happened to? Uh, well, he looked like he, he certainly looked like he'd be right. Yeah, no, but, uh, you know, it, it made Meryl comfortable, made me comfortable. Uh, but beyond being comfortable, you, you knew he was just the right person uh, for the job. I've got a thing I keep forgetting to say about plenty. Uh, one of the things about plenty, you know, I was talking about visually doing the deja vu movements and things like that, but there is a lot of sound in plenty uh, that is designed to subconsciously have the deja vu effect. So from the very opening, when the parachutes are coming down and she's watching them, you hear all of that. So throughout the film, and this, you know, Meryl picked up on this beautifully, throughout the film, when she's unwrapping those uh, tablecloths to put them on the flat of the table, deja vu, she's taken back immediately to that day. And that sound kept happening uh, throughout, you know. And there were other little things like that. There are little use of wheels and you know, wheel-like images and stuff which are reflected in the uh, earrings of the rings or whatever it was, and, uh, you know. And to have somebody get that, you know, uh, and incorporate it in what they did was just ter terrific, terrific. You know. real, real collaboration. Director's dream, I imagine. Yeah. Oh, that's the other thing. You know, you 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 know, I always have things to go up and say to freshen things up. And you know, that's particularly. It isn't always because it's necessary for the actor, but sometimes, you know, the other actor they're with might be doing eight takes when they've got it done in two or three, and they've now got to patiently stick around till the other one, other person gets it all comes up to speed and they've got to keep recreating what it is they do, you know. But you, uh, so you've got all that, but, you know, sometimes when they're so good and they're doing their things, you just keep going, you know, after a tape. Uh, and you realise after a while, you, you're assuming that she knows that, you know, you think she's done a great job or she doesn't need any input from you, you know, it's like my old man used to say, don't have anything good to say, don't say it. And uh, um, so I had to keep reminding myself, go up, tell her how good she is. Just, you know, don't overdo it, but just go up and say, remind her that's fantastic. Just, wow, knock me out, you know, because you can forget. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you just, uh, I used to call it, I, she probably never thought of it this way at all, but, you know, I used to just go up if, there, if things were, you know, suddenly held up for some reason, like like the press and getting rid of them or something like that. I used to just go up and stand beside her and just 
shimmer, <laughs> you know, to try to put good vibes out you know, without having to blab on, you know, and, and we could do that, you know, which was terrific. Nice. Oh, what are the chances of a third movie with Meryl? I've tried a couple of times. <laughs> uh, and, you know, um, sometimes availability is a problem. Uh, she tried uh, once in what would have been quite a damn good film, actually. Uh, where she was going to be a, um, a, de a senior detective. Uh, pretty tough. That would have uh, been good to can't remember what happened to her. Just fell by the wayside for all the wrong reasons, which often happens. Uh, that was that was the closest we got. Mm, but uh, yeah, no, I'd uh, I'd love to do it again. Yeah. That we wanted to ask one of, uh, assuming it's correct, IMDb lists one of your uh, in production or in development credits as uh, possibly doing the drowsy chaperone. Anything you can tell us about that? As both people who came from theater school, we got pretty close to doing that, and uh, I was very excited about it. Hugh Jackman was going to play. Um, uh, what's his name? Alonso, is that right? um, Aldolfo. Um, but we were in talks with Barbara Streisand to play uh, the drowsy chaperone. I was trying to get the right main lead. We had, really, we had a really great kind of uh, ensemble cast that was just landing the right uh, main, uh, main lead. Uh, and there was a bit of messing around with agents, mm. saying saying they were helping the project when, in actual fact, they were almost doing the opposite because one of their clients needed something that kind of that uh, clashed with us, uh, and uh, it was pretty pretty hard. And there was a little bit of a disagreement about. The budget level, the uh, the um, the producer, he's a good good guy out of Canada, and the whole writing team, everything were, were out of Canada. The writing team and myself and Je uh, Jeffrey Rush, by the way, was going to play man in chair. Nice. Uh, uh, we all wanted to put uh, a decent amount of money in. So that it wasn't just uh, a kind of, you know, semi-theatrical production uh, done really cheaply. We wanted to fill out the possibilities that you could do with it. Uh, but we didn't want to be profligate and make it, you know, a, a 40 or $80 million movie. It didn't need that, but it did need you know, 25 to 30 to give it uh, the production values, well, you could really surprise and delight. Uh, 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 I don't know whether you saw uh, The Greatest Showman. Did you see that? Yeah. Uh, there is, whatever you think of the film, there are some of the, there's some magic moments in it because that are cinematic, you know. Absolutely. And those, those magic cinematic moments make it you know they lift it to another place but they cost money right 
Uh, I don't know what that film cost. I'm sure it cost quite a bit. But we could have done, in our own way, the same kinds of things, uh, you know, at a, at a more respectable budget. But everybody wanted it. It could have been put together, but at a lesser budget than I thought would have been. Not just myself, the others too felt would have been constraining. So very, very, very sadly, it didn't happen. I've, I've attempted musicals a couple of times. I uh, nearly did a Tom, Tommy Tune uh, musical. Yeah. What's the one that's based on the... Is it Crazy uh, Person? Two, two for the Road? What was it? Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And again, you know, always they sort of felt part of the budget for things, which is a pity. Yeah, that is tap dance. I'd be good at musicals. I'm sorry you didn't get to see one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd well, like to see you direct one. Yeah, who yeah. knows? Maybe it'll circle back around. It feels like with the talent involved, that you know, uh, you certainly would have been. I can't imagine it not being a hit. Yeah, well, now Meryl would be perfect for the Drowsy Chaperone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He just did the prom. And then Jeffrey, unfortunately, he felt he got too old for it. He said, you know, like, uh, he, he sort of looked like a sad old dope, uh, you know, he, just, he said a sad old queen sort of <laughs> hide. Um, and I get that. I mean, if it was somebody, uh, you know, in their mid-40s, uh, maybe 50, it's, it's got a whole different connotation to somebody who's well over 50, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I was still prepared to go with him anyway, but he was a bit in himself, it was wrong. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, it didn't happen. That is too bad. That's a bummer. Do you find that, that it's harder to get films off the ground now? Like, how has the industry changed over the course of your career, in good or bad ways? For me, it's been difficult because I went from, you know, partly financing my own films, you know, um, Bird Devil's Playground and China, Jimmy Blacksmith had my money in it. Uh, you can't keep doing that. Then when I went to America, you know, I guess I was winnowing around within the uh, studio system uh, of interesting material. Not always easy to get off the ground, but at least when you got it off the ground, the money was there. And I had a great agent, you know. But time kind of was catching up with him and the world was changing very rapidly and you know what I was finding after a while it was kind of like just as I thought I understood where things were they'd shift on you now none of the films have ever been easy to get put together actually weirdly enough I think Russia House was the easiest and Six Degrees of Separation was uh, but that was when one of the when serendipity worked in New York, you know, there's a moment where everybody's got that excitement and boom, it happens. And in my experience, if it doesn't happen that way, 
it probably won't. So then suddenly the world's changing and where you know you used to make $25 million films, they started coming down to that kind of film has to be 15, that kind of film has to be 10, that kind of film has to be 8, that kind of film. Bloody George Clooney, you know, he made a film for, I think it was 8, you know, really good film. Now everybody wanted George Clooney in an $8 million film. <laughs> um, uh, so it got difficult. So then really what you found yourself in was the independent world again. And, you know, the outlets for, ind for uh, independent intelligent films were getting fewer, the money was getting smaller. So, I mean, you know, once again, you couldn't do it with the production scale that you wanted. Most times, most people couldn't see what I could see a film would be like. You know, like what's in plenty. It's great writing, it's great acting, but it's also what we did with it, all those subliminal things we did, all the way we photographed it, the places and all that. That lifts it up. That gives it the experience that you want people to have. But if people don't understand that, and if they, weirdly enough, if they can't extrapolate that from the work you've done, it makes it almost impossible, sadly. You know, that's what's happened to Andorra, which should be a, a great, weird, out there film. Uh, it's what's happened to my China-Australia film that I wrote. You know, it's, um, and then suddenly, five, six years have gone by and you've been working your butt off for no money and, um, and, and the people think, well, whatever happened to him? He retired. <laughs> and I haven't, I can tell you, you know, I'm, doing, I'm writing a five-part television series on spec, very interesting story told going backwards all the time and every scene you see belies the scene that you've just seen you know you think oh this is what it's about and you go backwards you go oh <laughs> and you know etc so, great, great idea hell to write <laughs> yeah. yeah how do you feel about the emergence of tv i know you directed empire falls and wrote the the sequel to Devil's Playground, and um, yeah. are you looking more towards TV now since the film industry has become so challenging? Uh, yeah, no, I'd, uh, I've tried to get a few things through Netflix that's, and uh, other places, and uh, that's that's some quite strange people were in charge who don't like returning phone calls or treating you with any respect whatever. So I got to find a way around that. Uh, by the way, um, Devil's Playground, the series, which I think is really good. Mm -hmm. I didn't write that. I just, mm -hmm. I gave, I gave my blessing to it and said, keep me out of it because I'll only get in the way. <laughs> you know, do what you want to do. And I did a lot of encouraging. And Simon Burke, obviously, the actor who was in the original Playground, I would, I was kind of ghost producing him, you know, giving him 
confidence and uh, did you like that Good series? I have not seen the series. I've watched your I've watched your original film. I haven't oh, seen right. the series. It's not it's not available in the US. Oh yeah, no, the original film I wrote, produced and directed and financed. <laughs> but uh, but there's a series done about that boy. Yes. Uh, I know of it. Yeah, oh no, it's worth seeing. It's very good. Uh, yeah. It touches on some uh, Great stuff. Yeah, it's good. Hopefully, hopefully we'll find a way to uh, see it here. Yeah, it's just not accessible, I think. But uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think, don't think it got sold over there. I don't know. Um, should be available somewhere. Yeah, we'll find it somehow. Yeah, yeah, I go on deep dives and find Australian content all the time that is not available here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I know I don't want to take up too much of your time. I certainly appreciate the time that you've given us. One of the things that we like to do, since it's kind of Merrill focused in the podcast, is ask folks, you know, who've, who've worked with her, taking out the movies that you've worked with Merrill on. Can you think of a project or two um, that there was something about her work that uh, surprised you? Or like if you had to pick a, a favorite Merrill performance outside of the ones that you've worked with her, what's something that comes to mind? Probably not one that was one of her favorites in a way for various reasons, but French Lieutenant's one was very good. Mm -hmm. First one that springs to mind. There are a couple others. Um, you know, you asked me before the difference between the two films. Uh, in the first, when we were doing plenty, uh, you know, they're all sometimes. You know that when she lays back on French left hand, it's one when she does that with her hands. Mm -hmm. Extremely beautiful thing. But if you do too much of that, it's very distracting. Uh, done at just the right place and just the right moment, it's beautiful. And I sometimes found Meryl was kind of too handsy. <laughs> not in the, not in the bad way, um, and and I needed I needed that character to be very contained and still. You know the fissures come from you know what's happening on her face. You know the inroads. Um, so you know she's controlled. So I used to keep talking to her about you know uh, keeping that stillness. I learned after a while, uh, and through her, she, I mean, basically she told me so what it really was often was if she wasn't really quite centered in the moment or quite uh, in her mind, quite on with what the character would really be doing, very close, but not necessarily. So sometimes that was happening. As a, as a, sorry, um, just in case this is not video, it's, um, you know, <laughs> move, the movement of hands and things was actually distracting a little from people noticing the other, right? So once, once I knew that, I was then able to go, okay, there's something in the writing or there's a lack of content or there's a lack of subtext here uh, or... You know, maybe we're confused as to where we are in this picture at this moment. 
you know, in relation to everything else that we need to talk about it. And so you, you talk about it and, you know, uh, and all that goes away. Uh, so when you sort of get to know somebody seemingly that well, uh, when you're watching other pictures, it's hard for me. Right? Right. I know what she's truly capable of, and even though what I'm watching is brilliant, there are things that if I was directing, I'd say, <laughs> no, please. Uh, but, you know, that, again, that's nuance. Yeah. yeah. I, I always kind of wonder, this is a somewhat elementary question, I think, but, you know, I would imagine that as an actor, I wouldn't like watching my own performance. Can you enjoy your own movies as a director because you don't physically have to see yourself? I would imagine as an actor, again, like you might disagree with some choices that you made and think, oh, I should have done that different. And you might have that same approach as a director or even a writer, but is it easier to watch your own movies? Uh, yeah, you know, you're watching me cringe because you know what you didn't do and you know, you know. My philosophy, and I'm sure Meryl is the same, my philosophy is aim for, and I know this is not right math, but aim for 150% or 125%, because the exigencies and other things are going to smash you into about 80%. But if, if you don't aim that high, you won't get to 80%. Mm -hmm. But you've always got to accept, and, and and this is the fact, and I don't know whether this applies for an actor or not, but halfway through a film, shooting a film, you already know, you're, you, you have already grown, you've already learnt more, and you, and you kind of wish you could go back and redo that, but you can't, and you can't, and you can't apply it for the rest of the movie. And because you've got to stay in the same style and logic and discipline that you've been working in. So you're always going to be slightly dissatisfied uh, at the end. And you'll just keep polishing it and polishing it until you get it, like I say, to the 80%. But uh, of course, and, uh, and I think it's good because you know, and the worst part is the next film you can't apply half of it to. <laughs> So you go, go through the same process all over again. True. But why I like to do everything different, I don't like to repeat myself. So yeah. I like to go on explorations. I like to learn something and, uh, uh, you know, anyway. That's obvious from your body of work. Even, like... even looking at this, this five string, we were talking about, we each watched several of your other movies as well. I watched separation and IQ. I've seen a, a bunch of your other films as well, but if you look at this run that you had from Cry in the Dark to Russia House to Mr. Baseball, Six Degrees of Separation to IQ, those movies couldn't really be more different from each other. True, true. <laughs> By the way, Mr. Baseball could have been twice as good as it was. Because <laughs> Ed, Ed Solomon and I wrote... Uh, something that was more about the cultural differences oh. and derived more of a tumor out of that but the studio got cold feet mm. and some actor who remained nameless had script approval <laughs> well that'll do it yeah so so outside of musical 
Eagles with the Drowsy Chaperone. Uh, anything that you've been longing, you know, to direct? What is something that's a Oh, well, Don Quixote. Uh, one of my biggest heartbreaks was Don Quixote. I had uh, John Cleese to play Don Quixote, Robin Williams to play Sancho Panza. Uh, um, the romantic leader, oh, who's her name? Shit, never mind. I'm not getting <laughs> uh, And uh, we had it all. We had it. The main cast, great main cast. We had a great crew, and Ian Baker again, as usual, and Patricia von Brandenstein. And we had all the locations worked out. We were about eight weeks off production. And then uh, Phoenix Pictures kind of got into a bit of money trouble, and uh, uh, we couldn't, couldn't quite get somebody to take it over, which uh, was a real heartbreak. Because I always thought, People play Don Quixote wrong. They always play it so theatrically and so aesthetically and, and with motivations that are not right. I've, we've plumbed both books. They're very thick. But the guy was just nuts. The guy went out because he's nuts. That's, that's yeah. what it's about. So hello, John Cleese. Wonderful. And don't play it. Don't play it. Uh, theatrically, just play it like, oh, you know, you're nuts. It would have been, uh, oh, anyway. It would have been magnificent. And, uh, and I was, I was, we, uh, another writer and I, Paula Jones wrote, uh, Laura Jones, sorry, uh, The Shipping News. Oh, and, uh, oh nice. We were going to do that, but not, not the way you saw it. It was going to be vital, and anyway, yeah. So there's a few, there's oh. a few, there's a few. Anyway. As well, the film industry is a fickle mistress. <laughs> True. Have we keep at it? <laughs> well, we're glad that you do, because we get to Thank enjoy you. your work. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking to us. We really appreciate it. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Have, have a, a fantastic day. afternoon. And best of luck with your projects. I hope that they fly. Yeah, I hope we. I hope we tell somebody to see Drowsy Chaperone. Okay, that'd be good. And uh, good luck with the election. Yeah. Well. Thank you. We're really hoping. <laughs> Let's hope the militias don't, don't hit the streets. Oh God. It's. Right. It's going to be ugly. Either way, it's just a question of how ugly for how long, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, it's wild over here. But I get in trouble because I get too political on our podcast. That's supposed to be about Meryl Streep. I get people write me all the time, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's all.